I'd rather be a freak than somebody's puppet on a string. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, the one and only Pitching Doctor. I've been looking forward to having the doc on the podcast ever since Medicine Through Movement recommended him on a podcast a couple episodes ago. And if you haven't listened to that podcast, I really highly recommend you listen to that. That's one of my favorite podcasts we've had in a while. And today, the doc does not let us down. He takes us down the rabbit holes of neural training, how he implements rebounds, isos, and plyometric trainings to level up the organism. And it's something that he has an immense amount of knowledge about. And he really takes us down some deep rabbit holes of why he implements these things and what he thinks it does to an organism. Then he takes us down the rabbit hole of the value of visualization. And we talk a lot about the physical side of things in this podcast, but he tries to tie the physical to the mental. And he really talks about how visualization can kind of be the key between that mental and physical side and how you need to have intent and focus in your training. So it shows up and you can just be the artist on game day. That was one of the really cool things that the doc mentioned on this podcast is when you step on the mound, when you step on the field, it should just be time to paint. It should not be time to think about techniques as you should have done that work already ready. It's really cool how he talks about the mental and physical side kind of tying in and really giving it a holistic approach. And finally, and this is one of the coolest and one of my favorite parts of the podcast is he talks about the ebbs and flows of his training. One, when you you look on his Instagram page recently, he's been training with just body weight. And I asked him about this because before on his Instagram page, he had a bunch of heavy barbell training. And he really takes us down the whole of why he ebbs and flows his training from heavy barbell training to light body weight, velocity-based training, and how he sets that program up. It's really cool to hear his mind work in more of a holistic fashion. It's not all planned out. It's not this system stuck in stone, but he talks about the ebbs and flows and why you need to give the body different stimuluses at different times and why physically and mentally that is important. This is a podcast you really want to notepad for as the doc takes us down some deeper rabbit holes and really expands your knowledge on a lot of the things that we've been talking about and experimenting with here at Yoakum Strength. So buckle in. Thank you for listening. Keep chopping wood. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, You'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with a Yoakum Strength coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines that includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Marcus, you know what time it is. Hit that intro music. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite level guests to unravel what high performance really is. You're going to ask me about... Uh what is sports performance generally speaking? Yep. Um, and I think that's a great question because I think that that should be identified, you know, toward the beginning of anybody's quest uh, for uh, tra- in training or to, you know, 
adapt so that you can become better at a sport. Um, that being said, I've said this to the guys that I've trained a lot that my goal in training them is ultimately to, uh, promote the environment within them so that they can best express themselves honestly, um, you know, via human movement or in this case, throwing a ball really. Right. So like being able to, uh, the freedom really to put thought into action really is, is the, you know, the differentiator. I think that for me, you know, you, you mentioned that usually something has to happen uh, for guys to make a big switch or guys, guys to have a degree of passion in their field for, for something like that. I think that, uh, you know, ultimately for me, it is the, was the frustration of having feelings within my own body and ability that I had within myself that I wasn't able to get out. Um, or whenever I was on the field, having, um, the, the aspects of inhibition overcome me to the point where I wasn't able to get out my, my own talent. And I think that a lot of people experience that. I think that a lot of people watch other people playing sports or they watch big leaguers on TV, or maybe they even just like watch me on my page or whatever else. And they say, I can do that. You know, and they, I can see myself actually performing that way or doing those things. Yet, whenever they put themselves on video or they actually get into that scenario where the adrenaline's high, they can't recruit it, right? And I, I think that that's really the thing that I like to see the most uh, is when guys come to me and I can see their potential. I can see what they really have available to them as far as their genetic potential, their athletic base and so forth, and where I think that could take them. And then them to actually realize that and, and maybe even go beyond that point where they thought, you know, where they really thought that they were trying to get. So that in my mind is really what embodies sports performance is uh, the little kid who's watching on the television. I want to be like that. And then his ability to actually make adaptations and stride to acquire that, that ability um, to play at that level. Right. So there are a lot of things that come into that. Um, and I think that's really where, what we're going to get into more is how do we break down the elements of um, acquiring those skills and what are the, what are the best routes, you know, in, in doing so? Yeah. You, you mentioned the aspects of inhibition. What, what, when you're looking at an athlete, are those inhibitions for them? Like, well, what is keeping them back? Cause a lot of times, like I, I look at the, the mental side, but it's also like there, there is the physical side. And I really try to think about how we blend together the, the, the mental and physical side of training and what is holding that athlete back? Like what, what really is holding that athlete back from performing or performing under pressure or performing in that situation? When, when you're looking at an athlete and really trying to get them to get rid of those inhibitions and you talked about promoting the environment within themselves, like, well, what's that process look like for you? Like, how do you start it off at, at day one and athletes walking in? Like, what are you looking at with them? How are we kind of working on, is it finding out the inhibitions first, which I'm assuming is a big part when looking at my own athletes to like talking to them. It's like the biggest key is like finding out what is actually holding you back. Like you, you'll have an athlete coming to you. It's like, I need to get faster. And you look at it. It's like, well, you're plenty fast. It's like you, you freak out when a, there's a person in front of you or something in a big football, mm -hmm. in a football world. But um, what is it when you're looking at these athletes, like what is holding them back for the most part? And how are you kind of approaching eliminating those inhibitions? Um, also a great question. I think it's different with everyone. I think that oftentimes you'll see trends with different age groups or, um, you know, talent levels, meaning that I think that with, let's say, for instance, kids who are just coming into high school, 
uh, with that, you know, the inhibitions that are at play are likely to be more things of the nature of intent, uh, you know, rep to rep and um, strength building. You know what I mean? Like simply just getting their body to um, recruit, you know, their higher threshold motor units and to, you know, I think that's why programs like uh, driveline and, and stuff like that work so well, especially, you know, for untrained individuals, like teaching intent. And, and I'm not like downplaying that by any means. So like, don't take it that way. I, I think that teaching intent is, is huge. I think that that's one of the things that guys, whenever I was in the backyard, I think that guys coming there, I said that often was that one of the biggest aspects that I, I believed why guys had a lot of success there was when they showed up, they believed that they were going to throw harder. Um, and whenever they got up there in their reps, that higher adrenaline, that state of adrenaline and the accompanying belief that they were going to do so, I think really yielded the right setting, you know, for success. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have, and I think that the intent can be learned at, at all ages or aspects or I mean, levels of training, right. And, and must be continued to be maintained. But at, at the same time, like with, with other athletes, you, you have more complicated scenarios, for instance, previous injuries, uh, that could be a massive issue with inhibition and getting the body to, especially at high velocities to move freely. And, um, you know, we also have the issue of basically, uh, reciprocal muscle groups. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. You, you talked about the ballistic drops and, and things of that nature and why we do those things. And I think teaching one of the biggest things with teaching uh throw something like throwing and and sprinting too um which i think the two are very similar i think is teaching the body to yes recruit the right motor units when it's performing the action but to also be able to relax and uh you know it's a game of tension management where the right muscles have to relax while the right ones contract and there has to be a smooth exchange throughout the process for there not to be interfering signals, right? Where we're actually decelerating the movement of a joint, um, you know, or there's, there's cross firing basically going on. So I think that, uh, like I say, within different individuals, it's going to vary, you know, and based upon their experience with, you got a guy who's coming in and he's already had, you know, experience playing professional ball for a while. Um, you know, it's, it's likely that you're going to come across different, uh, hurdles with him, the psychological aspects of, you know, having both had success and failure, you know, like in a high volume uh, or, you know, guys who've played indie, indie ball warriors who've been doing it forever and never broke in, like what that does to you psychologically, you know, there are a lot of aspects at play with all this. So I think that really just at the beginning stages, you just need to get to know the person that you're training. You know, be, try to befriend them to some degree and and get into the aspects that embody their their psyche as they approach how they're approaching. Why are they coming to you? You know, and then helping them to identify their why as to why they're doing it. And if you can get to that stage in the starting, you know, um, in the starting point with them where you can identify why they're doing what they're doing and what things are holding them back um, as an individual then whether it be psychologically rooted or physiologically rooted, right? We have, you know, lower motor neurons that dictate our 
skill learning in our movement, but we also have upper motor neurons that, that synchronize that movement and that allow us to do it within, you know, uh, high adrenaline states and so forth. So, you know, we have to make that connection and, and there's a process to that. So identifying that with each individual and then creating a, a plan to actually kind of attack those things from the root, you know, is, is important. Yeah. That's where uh, I would start at least. I, lo- I loved a lot of the points that you mentioned there. And one of the things you talk about is like sprinting uh, and throwing being very similar. And I see the same thing. I play a lot of slow pitch softball. So it lo- it's more so of a hitting sport, um, but it's the same thing. It's like these guys with just crazy exit velos off the bat. We're pushing like 115, 120. It looks like it's nothing. Like, and it's just everything. And the guys that are swinging hard, you know, like it looks like they're swinging hard, swinging tense. And this was my burst, like leaving football. Cause it's a little bit harder to see in football just when there is so much going on, but you see the same thing in like a great pass rusher. It looks effortless. It looks like he's not, doing anything and it's like we teach this grind we teach this brace we teach this and it's like this hard movement and it looks nothing like the fluid grace that we're seeing on the field um and it's it's almost that paradox of like it's rhythmic it's relaxed but there's a ton of um force and power going through it and that was something that really opened my eyes in the softball world is looking at these guys they, they just look like a whip it looks like you throwing the ball like it's the same thing it's just like looks like this rotational whip that is super beautiful and something that you mentioned earlier in the podcast like you you said give them the ability to express honestly. And then you mentioned earlier, move freely, like express honestly and move freely. What does that mean to you? Because I, I really think in the baseball world, you probably see a ton of like, and I, you see it in the football world, it's starting to creep in, but there's so much technology and it's so like, you have to move like this. Like you have to move like that robot. And it's really not expressing honestly. And it's not expressing freely. It's not moving freely. It's almost like trapping them. I'm seeing it a ton in the sprint world recently. And I understand there's positions to hit and understand there's things we want to do, but it's like you're taking so much freedom away from that athlete, so much movement freedom, and you're trying to create these robots and it gets them from maybe point A to point B, but like our goal is point C and we're just missing that. And we're trapping them in that point B movement. And we get the pats on the back for getting them from point A to point B, but honestly, anything was going to get them from point A to point B. And that should not be like our end goal, but it, right now it seems like it's our end goal and we're trapping them in that point. What do you mean by expressing them, expressing honestly and moving freely. And how do you think we can kind of approach the field in a better way to accomplish these things rather than the robotic, robotic training that I'm seeing a lot in our, in our field. Okay. So I think that, again, you kind of have to take a, a step back and look at what are the, what are you trying to teach? So we, we can break down what aspects, like we discussed in the beginning stages, what what are the foundational aspects that may be holding this, this athlete back from achieving the adaptation that's required for him to meet his goals? Okay. So I have a guy who comes in, he's at 90 miles an hour. He wants to throw 95 miles an hour. We identify that he's had a previous shoulder injury and that maybe he is a little overweight and has the necessary strength, but lacks the speed. So uh, and coordination, rate of force development, or whatever else, right? So we're we're going to construct more of a program around those aspects, like training those aspects, right? Um, and I think that for, like I said earlier, I think that for for most athletes, once they get into uh, the level of play where it's at a professional level, I think that finding guys who lack a lack strength or that are in a big strength deficit, that's few and far between. I think that more you find more athletes who, um, you know, lack the ability to move their body dynamically and do that 
at a high volume and do it day to day to day and feel healthy while doing it. And I think that you find a lot fewer athletes who are able to do that by comparison. So um, that'll being said, I think that you approach each element in the weight room and like you have work that you do in the weight room, whether it be familiarization with position, whether it be, um, you know, ballistic movements, maximum contractions at maximum velocity, right. Over short periods of time, plyometric work, whatever else, but you break down each element of the throw, right. Uh, from an like positional and anatomical standpoint, whether it be single leg squat or March single leg squat, you know, like, uh, wide squat to lunge, you know, like is kind of how the cascade of the throw goes, right? There are different elements that make up the whole of the throw. There are different movements that make that up. So you kind of break those down step by step, and then you, you train them according to what adaptations you're trying to yield. Um, typically you start with the ground up. Um, I like, I like to, in the weight room, I start from the ground up and I try to train every joint through its full range of motion. I think that another aspect of the uh, ballistic work and the plyometric work that is often not discussed is yes, you are with, let's say like the ballistic bench press, for instance, with that, you are having to apply, you know, the same or more force because that bar is now falling at a faster rate than you probably be pulling it down. But let's say the same force in a shorter window, right? Because you're having to catch it and overcome the force of that 20 kilogram bar falling and, um, you know, you catching it and redirecting, actually overcoming the weight of that. So you're taking the same and you're putting it into a, into a shorter window. Um, so you have all these different tools, right? Different methods of contractions or, uh, rep schemes and, um, what have you, so that you can try to train a specific adaptation in the weight room and train in joint to joint. I like to start from the ground up, ankles, knees, hips, so forth, um, as sport specific as possible, right? The flip side of that, when you're learning the actual throw, I think that you start with the hand down instead of the ground up. You start with the thing that the person is actually feeling the most. Um, so you start with the release point and you start at the end and work your way backwards. You know, you start with what are the, what should they feel at release and with the fingertips and with the hand and how to stay loose and with the, and then you work back into the arm swing and the arm action and so forth, and then back down into the ground. So the, before the person actually, you know, you're trying to teach, teach a way of feeling the throw that, so that before they actually begin the throw itself, they know what feelings they're trying to see. Um, I hope that makes sense. The very much the same way that if you get a, get up on the, on the tee box, you can feel the flushed 350 yard drive down the middle before you take the swing. Hopefully you feel that in your mind. Right. And that's what you're trying to reproduce. I think for a lot of guys, that inhibition aspect is, and what makes guys robotic is not knowing where their body is in space, not being familiar with what their body should be doing or actually owning the mechanical profile of their throw. And having had so much previous pain, you know, and from doing it incorrectly that there are all these little uh, points in their throw where they're second guessing themselves right and there's they're decelerating their body instead of accelerating it and putting force into the ball that that 
along with the carryover from training to game setting. Okay. So that all being said, the best that anyone is ever going to perform is when we put them back out on the field after having broken down each of these elements, right. And train them, constrain them and train them, right. So that we can yield an adaptation. Then we put them all back together again. We put the guy back out on the field and now he's at, you know, the highest adrenaline he's going to be, you know, highest state of adrenaline he's going to be in with, you know, the most competitive atmosphere. And at that point, the focus should then shift to psychologically speaking, not where my body is in space, but what am I trying to do with the baseball alone? Meaning if I'm trying to make the ball go like this at 95 miles an hour, then it should literally be, I take my sign. Yep. That's what I get take a deep breath, relax, feel my release point, right. Of what that's going to feel like to make the ball do that, just like the golf shot or whatever, and then go and go into action in order to perform that task. There is no other thought in between. It's just execute that task to make the ball go like this or to make it go like that or to make it go like this or whatever else. Right. So that is the, when I say to move freely, now you're now you're an artist out there and now you're just you're pitching to execute you know what i'm saying you're you're, you have all these different tools you can make the ball go this way this way whatever else and according to how you're reading the hitter you're reacting to their you know their model what they're trying to do to you and there's this great exchange right where um now you're not no longer inhibited by thinking about where your body's in space or you know, trying to, uh, load up or whatever else, right. Move fast. No, you just, you're just reacting to the thought of what byproduct you're trying to produce. Um, I think that a good analogy is when I think everyone has experienced this at some point, whenever they're playing really well and something they're in the zone. And, um, I use the analogy of having a, a girl that you like showing up to your game and you kind of step outside of yourself for a minute and you see yourself from a third person perspective out of, from her eyes, right. You kind of get into her eyes and you, you think about how, how swaggy your movements look or whatever else, right. That's when you're playing your best though, is whenever you're not thinking about whether you're walking the dude or whether, you know, I don't know whether I'm going to strike out. No, it's, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's, uh, you know, I'm thinking about how good I look out of here right now. And that's typically when you're at your best, that is taking the brakes off. And I think that all of the aspects, right. That we talked about, whether it's, learning the throw portion from the end back to the beginning, learning the movement, right? The gross motor skills that go into and the fine motor skills that go in to make up and body that entire skill, um, you know, beforehand learning them from the ground up, like all of that comes into play. Right. And then whenever you put it all back together again, hopefully if the psychology is right, that's what, you know, all those aspects come together and create the beautiful symphony that is the pitching delivery. And that, that, so are you, we're saying that it's almost like building the confidence and foundation in the training. So you don't have to do it on the mound. Cause that's something I see with a lot of, and this is in the football world. It's like, it's, they don't have trust in the training process. And that's almost like when they fall apart. Cause then they have to think about, okay, my foot should go here when they're in a game, when it's supposed to be the art, like mentioned that you're talking about it's, it's, they're freezing up in the game. They're thinking about the, the training aspect in the game. They're thinking about like the practice aspect in the game. Whereas you said, it should just be, that's when it should be just painting. Like you, you should have already done that work. You should have already built that up to where it's like, it's just almost automatic. And like, I love the point that you mentioned where it's that third person. It's like, I, I felt that so many times. It's almost like 
it, it's like a lot of times in like the best football games, like you don't even remember it. Like it's, it's just like it's it's over and you're like, wow, like what just happened? You don't remember like pieces of it just like that. It's it's so true. Once you feel the state that you're talking about, it's it's <laughs> it's the more you're thinking about it, the more you're almost remembering it, the more you're trying to force it, that the worse it is for yourself. That's right. That's right. Anytime the, the brain has to plan for an action, right? Um, I think that's a, that's a good a good rule of thumb. Anytime it has to plan for a complex action, it's slowing down. Okay, it's inhibited. You're no longer working off of a reflex arc anymore. You know where that that feedback is going from, you know, the body to the spine and then right back out, you know, to the body again. So. So in, 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 in the, in the game itself, are there things that you're working with your athletes to draw them back into that flow state to draw? Is it, is it just like, it's, it's either there or it's not in that game or, cause I, I've also felt it, especially like going into more of the baseball world with the slow pitch in the baseball world, but more of the slow pitch stuff. It's like, all right, you're in that zone. You're in that zone. And then there's something that almost like draws you out or it's like, then you start thinking about something and it draws you out. Are you, you ever work with athletes where to draw yourself back in? Are there things to focus on? maybe before the game even starts to get you in that zone before, or is it just, it's there or not, it's not that day. I think that, yeah, I think that some days are going to be more difficult to focus than others. I think that also what you have going on in your life has a big, you know, plays a big factor in that, whether guys realize it or not, I think everyone wants to believe that they can compartmentalize and not be affected by what's going on with my, you know, in my family life or my, you know, job or my other job over here or whatever else like no i think that all plays a role of course but at the same time there there are ways of training that as well right there are methods of i think that visualization is, is probably the biggest one probably the most common commonly talked about but probably also the most commonly underutilized as far as guys designating time before going at either into their training session or onto the field and really setting aside a period where they uh, discuss with themselves in detail what they would like to see. You know what I'm saying? Like and down to the specifics of what it's going to smell like out on the field, what it's going to look like, uh, all of it, you know, and um, what it's going to feel like as they're striking the individual out, like playing it step by step all the way through from start to finish. I think that there are, a lot of uh, coach. There are a lot of coaches out there for what to do um, in the instance of being actually in the middle of the game and um, losing focus. You know, I've had some coaching in that arena myself. Uh, I think that having a reset of sorts. Um, I've heard uh, things like having a, a person in the stands that you look back at as a reset or the foul pole, or I think guys use a color sometimes that they use as a reset between pitches or um, obviously breathing has a lot to do with that and what have you. But I think that really the biggest, probably the biggest thing that comes into play outside of things that you can practices that you can implement before, during game or whatever, more than anything, it's what degree of focus do you bring into your training on a daily basis? You know, if you go into your work and you're, you never compromise the quality of your work um, and you take, take elite pride in what you do, meaning that I'm going to always make what I do um, 
biomechanically sound. I'm going to do it as dynamically as possible. And I'm going to find another level within me each day. I'm again, I'll go back to the why I'm going to find another level within me each day that is going to cultivate my ability to fucking send it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you got to be able to find that in yourself and put focus into each repetition that you do on a daily basis. Otherwise, when you get onto the field, the likelihood of that being easily accessible to you, it's probably not very good. I think we got guys who have displayed that, you know, throughout time, you know, Michael Jordan used the, the uh, phrase that he, you know, the reason why it was so easy for him was that he, all of his practice was, he practiced harder than he did when he was in the game. You know what I mean? Like he put more into designated more, uh, of his time and he had actually worked more intensely in the, in the hours that he devoted to his practice than he actually had to um, put forth in the game. Now I'm not sure if that is actually true or not, but the idea is actually, you know, is, is understandable is that, uh, you know, he made it real for himself that all of his training, he was not just out there by himself. He was playing against a real guy, you know, and he was doing it at just as intensely as, as he would in a game. So I think that uh, obviously once the adrenaline's up and all that, you're always going to be at your best just because that's how the body works. But that's how you want to approach the intensity day to day. Yeah. And like that you, if you accomplish that, it's going to be there. And like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, it's like almost like surrounding them in an environment in which that's easy, like almost easily accessible. Like if you're surrounded by a bunch of dudes throwing like a hundred miles an hour, it's like, you, you better throw a hundred mile an hundred miles an hour. Like you better step up to the plate to do that. Um, and I, I truly believe there is a huge part of the internal aspect. Like at some point you shouldn't totally need that, but if you're creating environments in which it's easy, and I say, I notice it with myself too. And I have a bunch of training experience in myself. It's like, if I'm surrounded by a bunch of dudes, I'm, I'm training with Jake and will like the, the training session is so much more different than when you're by yourself. And I, I pride myself on internally being motivated and being able to do that, but it's still like that, that next level of training. And that's like finding an environment in which you allow yourself to blossom in that and, and explore and really push the boundaries like that. But I, I love the point of like the, the, the focus doesn't just come the day of the game, you know, like you, you have to have that and build that up. And it's, again, that's tying together that like, it's the physical focus, but it's also the mental focus of your practice. And something I've been really interested in is trying to like, have athletes set their intent for the day, you know, like intent for that training session. That's something that I've noticed uh -huh. recently. It's like, it's, it's sometimes you get lost in, and it's not saying it needs to be like a game changer event, but it's like, there should be an intent for your training session. Like take the one minute before we start training to set that intent. Like, what do you want to do today? Like why, like going back to the why it's like, why do you want to do that? You know, what can we accomplish today that you want to do? And I found once they're able to bring themselves to that, the training session is always so much better. That doesn't mean it's always PRs and, and beautiful, but it's like so much better than it was before where it's just like, sometimes you kind of get, just get lost in the muck of like going through the training session or it's like your 12th week on the training program. It's like, it becomes less sexy when it gets to that point, but it doesn't, when you set your intent, it doesn't, when you sit, you set your focus for the day and what you really want to accomplish. Uh, absolutely. I think that uh, there was something else I was going to touch on that you just kind of talked about right there is that, I think whenever you're also talking about like bridging the gap between how skill specific you get or sport specific you get versus what you do in the weight room and how do you balance all that or how do you like bridge the gap between the two is that if you, if you start with quality of work first and then you start with learning, remembering, all right, well, whatever we do in the weight room is ultimately so that we can try to throw the ball harder or whatever else, right. Or uh, with better health, um, then 
now really what you want to do is you want to try to get the individuals that you're teaching to take what they learn within the skill learning, within the actual throw portion, starting from the hand down. And then once they get back into the weight room again, they're going to better understand why you're doing what you're doing in the weight room. You know, now I understand how these skills in the weight room, these positions in the weight room actually apply to my throw. When you start to bridge that gap, then you've really set a good recipe for success with your athletes because then the intent goes up automatically. You now have guys doing the exercises with more intent because they understand how it helps them and that it directly does help them um, and so forth. So I think that that's another important aspect to that. Yeah. I love that. It's like having, having those nuanced conversations and just educational conversations with your athletes like that. That's the, you talked about. It's, um, like promoting the environment within themselves, you know, like, so they can express themselves, you know, like giving them the power to themselves. Like they shouldn't need you and I, but that, that's kind of my goal. It's like by the end of it, they shouldn't need you and I, like we're there to guide, we're there to help, we're there to educate. But like, if, if we truly have a good training experience and we're educating them themselves, like by the end of like a year or two, like we, we talked with some of our athletes, it's like, they could honestly like train themselves, you know, like they, they, they have these knowledge pieces. They understand why we're doing some of these things. And now you and I are pushing and guiding and seeing certain things in themselves that we can move and go forward. And I, I really think there's a, there's a, there's a benefit to that, but it's like, I feel like sometimes, and I just look back at some of my own training. It's like, there was no education piece, you know, like it was just do this program, do this, do that. It's like, there was really no like, okay, why? Or like, am I getting smarter? Or am I doing it? And I'm not saying every athlete needs to become a coach or needs to be able to become a coach, but they should have the knowledge piece behind what they're doing and having those conversations with those athletes. Like you said, it's like weaponizing them both in their brain and their bodies, like giving them that ability to understand why and kind of make themselves able rather than make themselves dependent on us. Right. I think that the, as trainers, one of our, the biggest things that we do is keep people accountable. Uh, in all honesty, I think that's probably one of the biggest things that we're responsible for. That all being said, um, you know, you want the person to take accountability for their training. Um, and if you weren't there, you'd want them to work just as hard right? If you weren't present in the weight room, but as we just discussed, that's not the case. You know, the, that's why people pay people like me and you is because the workout is never going to be as good, uh, as it's going to be if the environment is created. Um, and you know, there are people sharing and the passion for what they're doing together that always makes for a better environment. Um, on top of which, when you have people like me and you that designate all of the hours of their time, really outside of training our own bodies. But even that's done. I think with me, the difference is other individuals that I'm training are training their own bodies in order to try to get their bodies to perform a certain task more efficiently or at a higher level. Me oftentimes, yes, I do that to my own body as well. But a lot of times I train my own body with in respects to what I think is going to give me the best experience to best train my athletes. So I look at my own body as a uh, field for experimentation, right? So that I can try to figure out what are the best methods to train my guys. So I'm saying my focus is totally different from theirs, right? The, my focus is completely rooted in, I have an entire pool of athletes and I'm looking at, and over time, right over, over a period of, of years, actually, where I'm looking at what stimulus I've put in, and then what byproduct has come back out and what are the typical pitfalls? What are the typical, you know, things that have to be communicated through and so forth to make this exchange efficient. And, um, then I'm 
taking the sum of that information and I'm putting it into your program according to what, you know, I know about you. And, um, you know, that, that is a, when you have that, and then you have somebody there to hold you accountable to it and to provide you the experience aspect of that, uh, along with it, that's going to make for a much better, uh, that's a much better recipe for success, I think, than guys who are trying to do it solo. I think that my understanding and my, my education on how to train others and train myself, though it's always going to be growing. And the older I get, the more I realize that, you know, there's a lot I don't know. I do feel like I have a pretty good grasp on the, you know, at least all the foundational part parts of that and the ins and outs of, of uh, how to build that. Uh, yet at the same time, it doesn't matter how good I get at that. I would still, if, you know, and, and as I am thinking about going back and playing, um, you know, like I went over and started throwing a fuel factory specifically so that I could work with Zinger over there and have another set of eyes on me. And also so that I could be held accountable because I need to get off the mountain more and I don't have another mountain available to me. So just to have somebody that is going to force me to get more mountain work in, you know what I mean? Like, there is because it's not convenient for me. It's 45 minute drive. So like there, all I'm saying is there are aspects of like everybody's training where if you have another person who is take designating time and energy to get you your working to help you recover and to help you do it in the right, you know, timing with your game days and everything else, you're going to have much more success, you know, than if you're trying to do it alone. And I think also the other piece of that is, all of the space that it affords you as an athlete to not have to worry about that. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, you should want to understand why you're doing what you're doing, but at the same time, the ability to just wake up every day and have that kind of all plotted out for you and just take it and go to work on it. I think that that's a luxury, you know what I mean? And that's, that's ultimately why people like you and me have jobs. So <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent. And then, like you said, just letting the athlete focus on what they're supposed to. And we talked about focus and intent. It's like not spreading out that focus and intent for them, which I've definitely caught myself in when I was an athlete. Like if I lost faith in a program, maybe it's a bad strength coach or just, I'm just, no, there's something more. You lose that faith. You lose that kind of intent in the program itself. And then you got to spend your time that you're supposed to be spending moving forward in a program, moving forward in with your body. Cause you are trying to put all your eggs into an athletic basket. You're spending that time and focus on trying to figure out the answer, you know? So hopefully you find a coach like yourself where it is like, okay, this guy has the answer for me rather than me having to lose that faith and have to find out the answer. You do. You talked about your, your training yourself. And this is something I'm super interested in and what got kind of got me wanting you on the podcast and looking at your Instagram page and watching your training. Some of the stuff is wild. It's pretty cool. Um, something I've been seeing this past, I think it's like the past month, but you've been using just a barbell with no weight. Everything's been drops. Everything's been rebounds. Um, whereas before on your Instagram page, you were doing some heavier deadlifts, some heavier zerchers, um, but it hasn't been popping up and not saying you're not doing it at all, but what has been kind of that, that shift or maybe guinea pig experiment this past month of the barbell with no weight? Like what's kind of your thought process and approach there? Well, so I kind of go myself. I just kind of go in, uh, phases and it's, you know, I program it this way and I, I have a little theory that's based upon actual research too, but, um, a few different things. So not all tissue recovers the same at the same rate. That's, that's the first thing. So typically at the beginning stages of a block, I like to focus on things like tissue metabolism and building tendon strength because tendons don't recover as fast as muscle tissue. So, um, 
you know, with those, with the heavier holds, with isometric contractions, what you get is you get a contraction of the muscle tissue, which doesn't account for any movement, right? Um, so you have the muscle contracting, but the, the joint itself doesn't actually move. The, so as a byproduct, what you get is a lengthening of the tendon. And uh, that's one of the great benefits of isometrics is tendon health. We know that when the body moves at high velocities, tendon strength is becomes a larger factor, right? Because of uh, the stretch reflex and so forth. So uh, with the beginning stages of the buck, I like to focus on things like the longer duration isometrics, the heavier holds I like to build. And then, you know, moving into some strength base, some hypertrophy, you know, as well. Also, hitting the bottom, the lower spectrum, you know, somewhere 30 to 40% of the one rep max moving it rapidly. And then you're, you're right around that range where you can, you would be doing ballistic work as well. Um, with just the barbell, you're, you're under that range, but, um, also one of the aspects of this is that with, with pitching, um, you know, it's a movement that takes about two seconds at the most, to perform. So it's extremely high velocity, extremely fast twitch movement. Um, the, I like to try to think about the adaptations that I'm yielding in the person's body in the long term as well. With throwers, you want to have, you know, a rib cage that's cylindrical with a guy who is trying to lift the bench press world record. He's going to have a much flatter type of orientation to his rib cage and his chest over years of compression in this way. That's why you'll see me do a lot of the single arm stuff on my side. You see some single arm benching on my side and uh, stuff like that as well. Um, so the, you want to think about like, how are you, how are you in over the long period of long period of time too? what physiological adaptations are actually going to help me with my sport. So am I, promoting the building of fast twitch fibers? Am I building tendon strength and, you know, the areas that matter in the Achilles and the elbow uh, and, you know, and so forth uh, and the shoulder? Um, am I, uh, you know, am I building lateral, you know, change in ability to change direction and so forth? Um, there are a lot of things that, that comprise that movement that should be prioritized, right? And that the, um, if you look at how you want to build out the block, you want to start with prioritizing the things that take the longest to recover, right? So that as you are kind of seeing the adaptations from the other aspects of training, maybe into week three or four or whatever else, and, you know, going into the latter part of the block, as you're seeing the benefits from that, the benefits from the, the other aspects of training, which might take a little bit longer, to realize those are also coming on at the same time. Um, I think that something that's commonly seen, you know, huge gains and muscle power or muscle strength rather, um, you know, may not be a great thing. You know what I mean? Like it may not be the best thing unless the body is being balanced properly. Right. In order to move at a high speed. So just because I, put a huge uh, amount of weight on my bench press this year, that may not be best unless I have the 
posterior strength in the shoulder capsule to withstand the amount of elastic, you know, uh, uh, potential that's, that's being created by the, the pack now, uh, right. In order to decelerate. So all I'm saying is that there's a, there's a balance to how you want to train each of these aspects, right. So that they're kind of coming together, um, in complement in a complementary fashion, um, with, the, what you'll see with a lot of research, though, um, I think if you look at stuff that studies like weight resistance and then rest periods that kind of studies the, the variability in rest periods with weight, weight training, um, is that when there are bouts of heavy resistance training followed by periods of, you know, two, two to four weeks, even a period of time where there's very little to no heavy resistance training, you'll see those uh the percentage of fast twitch fibers, like locally speaking, uh, and those tissues that were being trained go up 15%, 20%. Um, and now this could be, I think that it's all, it's like in keep with what we were just discussing that you have kind of, uh, two things that are feeding that adaptation. You have a, you have that I've been training, you know, at a, somewhere over 85% of my one rep maximum. And I've been training fast twitch fibers via heavy load, right? So now my body is going to adapt and produce more fast twitch fibers, right? But at the same time, now that I have shifted focus and done focus more on volume of faster movements um, and the magnitude of speed, right? Moving at uh, as fast a velocity as possible, you are a coordinating those movements right? You're coordinating those fibers, right? To move more in a fine motor fashion. So you have gross motor movements, fine motor movements that would be throwing, grasping, writing, you know, anything like that. Um, and so you're actually coordinating those things and teaching the muscle, which is now more fibrous, right? Or maybe larger, more fibrous, either from a, a hypertrophy standpoint or a hyperplasia standpoint, having more sarcomeres in the series, whatever. Um, now I'm going to teach it to rapidly lengthen, right. And absorb force rapidly because I know that the more rapidly it can absorb force, the more rapidly it can create force um, and so forth. So you can kind of see like there's a step-by-step a -step process to kind of how you'd want to train the body to recruit fibers, right. And isometric contractions are also best for that yield the best uh, total amount of recruitment, you know, followed by training eccentric strength, right. Uh, the body's ability to absorb force in position and then a training, eccentric strength rapidly and then overcoming strength and, and producing that rapidly. Um, and I think that like learning how to kind of gauge the flow of that so that it complements your pitching. That's, that's why you see the phases, you know, probably on the page where I'll go through periods of strength building and then focus on more coordinating those movements and, you know, more sprinting and more stuff like that sprint drills and, and making all those movements fluid. Um, also, I think that, like I said, I think there's a physiological adaptation that gets yielded by that, where there's an overall total, uh, you know, remodel of more fast twitch fibers that way, whenever you kind of go in little bouts of rest uh, from the heavier resistance training. That all being said, I do believe in, you know, going right back to doing some super maximal holds and stuff like that. Uh, once you get beyond that phase so that you can continue to stimulate the nervous system to adapt. I just think that it, 
it all comes down to what have you been doing? Like, what do you need the most of? Like, where are you at in your fitness journey and, and all that, you know? So for untrained individuals, they're going to yield different adaptations than guys who have been doing ISOs forever and doing really heavy stuff or whatever else. Like the training guys like yourself who do heavy ISOs commonly, you know, like frequently. And, um, I would say that like, there is a great benefit for guys like you who've recruited lots of, uh, talked about it. You recruit a great number of fibers and even build a good foundation of fast twitch fibers. Now, knowing that in order to coordinate them further, um, and also the benefits of ballistic movement being that with a higher volume of those maximum velocity contractions, which you get as a lower threshold of recruitment, meaning that you don't have to send as strong a signal anymore for your body to turn all those muscles on and to have those fast twitch fibers available to you in your movement. So like your ability to just be springy, you know, like without really having to try that system stiffness and all that, like that's built i think through those that high volume of uh you know with drop catches and stuff like that it's a plyometric impacting you know nature movement with a stiffness aspect to it as well so that's why i really like the plate drops and stuff like that um and the rebounds with the arm as well you see a lot of the rebounds that you know with the arm as well i think that that's also a great way to bulletproof the joint and to for some co-contraction in the joint so that uh, you can bulletproof it against, you know, rotator cuff issues. So, yeah, dude, I love that. I, I've been talking about that. It, what really opened my eyes for a lot of this was during COVID and it was, it was by totally by accident. It was, I was forced out of the weight room for the first time. And I was thinking about, like, I was talking about all these ideas on the podcast, but it was never forced to actually implement them. Um, and so it was like, all these years of heavy strength training, heavy compression into like no access to do any of that here in Minnesota. It was all locked down. Um, and during that time, it did the, the transition and how much springier you were able to feel after that. And then going back into the weight room after like the numbers went up, you know, like, and it was just crazy. It was a huge eye opener for me of a lot of the things that you're mentioning. And to me, it was like a little bit of the law of diminishing returns. It's like, all right, so you, you, you're squeezing the juice out of the strength in this aspect. All right, you need to drop back down and maybe squeeze the juice out of the velocity or the co-contractions or the relax, relaxation or just the coordination aspect. Like you mentioned, like there's so many pieces that we can squeeze the juice out of, but I feel like so many times we just squeeze the juice out of one piece and then it's really hard to get another piece. So we just squeeze harder and we squeeze harder. It's like, mm -hmm. man, just let go of that lemon for a little bit, let it grow for a little bit. And then we can go to like, we can go squeeze the orange over here. You know, like there's so many pieces that we can squeeze. And I really like that ebb and flow that you mentioned. It's something that we really kind of, we really try to do here and, and try to perfect that process. Like you mentioned, but really continually changing that up for the athlete and continuing to like you mentioned flow a couple of times so that we talk about that all the time, like ebb and flow between the two and making sure the athlete's able to. And we've seen really, really cool results of, you're able to squeeze the lemon longer and you're able to squeeze the lemon long, like more out of that lemon itself, you know? So you're, you're, you're not getting beat up. And that's something that we really notice is like, especially a higher trained athlete. If you try, you really try to get max results out of something they've done for a long time. They really get beat up pretty quickly. And a lot of times it's because they're so good at it, like to give them a new stimulus with that. It's so much, but like a lot of them, like a lot of American football guys, like uh, an ISO is so new to them that they suck at it so bad that you don't have to squeeze at all. Like a one minute right. ISO will give them huge, like tendon ligament benefits to them. And that, it's going to lead to more performance gains than anything that we could have squatted with. And then we go back to the squat after a bit and just giving them that break. So I've, I've totally seen exactly what you're talking about. Just like you, you laid it out in a really, really cool way, but like we've seen it like live in front of our eyes, like, holy shit, like this is what's happening and trying to really perfect that aspect of those things. 
And I think another part is that of this is that when guys look at strength um, and they look at typically the the mass of the object being moved. So let's, as we're using bench press as an example, we'll just go back to that. That typically the stronger athlete, right, is the guy who can lift the most weight. I think that, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, we know that power is an expression of that strength, right? How fast you can move a weight. I think at the same time, another piece of this that a lot of people don't really think about is instead of moving the weight, thinking about the body itself and the movement that the body itself is actually making and the impact that holding a heavy weight makes on the movement of the body versus holding a lighter weight makes on the body. So in some cases, I think that holding a heavier weight actually even promotes better movement patterns with some people and in some instances. I've seen guys who have a shitty motor pattern in a certain exercise, and then whenever you load it, all of a sudden they become more efficient because they have to, be, right? I think that at the same time, one of the better approach in most scenarios is that what you'll see is that when I put the broomstick in your hand, Okay, with the bench press. Now you have only a broomstick sitting there, not even a barbell, just the broomstick. And I say, now perform the ballistic bench press, okay, where you drop the bar and catch it. What you have then is you have almost a different exercise entirely, really, than even the ballistic barbell bench or the bench press itself. What you have is a, a bench press that's focused almost entirely on scap retraction and on the speed of scap retraction because A, I don't have to really produce almost, I don't have to produce hardly any tension to hold that stick up. Whereas if I'm holding 275 pounds or even a hundred pounds uh, before I drop it, I have to produce a, a, you know, a pretty sizable amount of mechanical tension in the pack, right. To hold it up before I have to release that tension in order to be fast and go down and then back up to meet the bar. Right. So I can't be fast if I'm tense and that's the, biggest aspect of this is again i go back to tension management here that if you can't be fast and tense at the same time then that means that well wait a second you said earlier that if i want to produce force rapidly then i need to absorb force rapidly but if i can't be fast and be tense then how am i supposed to do both well that's the game that we play if you have a really heavy weight and you go down too fast then you don't control it and you don't really use the elastic activating potential to rebound the way back up, right? If you, it's not controlled anymore, it's actually not helping you. If you do it too slowly, then you don't get that, that action either. So that the same thing is true whenever you get the stick in your hand, not have to produce any mechanical tension. And my range of motion is actually the greatest that it's ever going to be on the bench press because the velocity at which my arms are moving back into retraction is the greatest that it will ever be. So I think that that's like the, probably the biggest piece that people don't think about when it comes to training lightweight is that training light, light, lightweight at high volume, it forces the body to move in its greatest range of motion at its fastest magnitude. And it is the only time where you are actually going to coordinate at the velocity that's closest to the on-field to what you will be doing at the, at the field of play on the field of play. So the stick itself is actually just as much or more valuable in my mind than the holding, you know, the 275 at the top, you know, just because that's actually closer to 
boom, boom with the throw, then, you know, heavy benches. So, and, and even more so all the, all the strength and the, um, you know, the strength and the coordination that I build to hold heavy weight, I'm going to want to coordinate that way. Anyway, I'm going to want to utilize that in order to complement the reciprocal muscle groups, right. And my posterior chain and so forth. And, and actually bring that into a rapid movement that I can put into the field of play. So, yeah. And that goes back to the only way you see exercises and the only way you see a stimulus, the way that you're seeing it is if you keep it tied to your goal. Like you mentioned that way earlier in the podcast, it's like, what, what's your goal? Like to throw faster, you know, but a lot of times I feel like we lose that goal. We lose sight of that goal. We lose, we don't, we just don't, it's just like, we're, we're bench pressing the bench press at that point, you know? And whereas like the only way to see it through the eyes that you're seeing it, whereas that broomstick's actually valuable is if you see like the reason we're doing this is to actually throw faster. Like it's, it's, it's not just the bench more, which I, I think a lot of times in like the traditional sports performance sector, we really, really lose sight of. Um, and one thing, the last question I want to ask you before we get into rapid fire rounds um, and I'll let you go here is you mentioned the 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 rib cage of a if a um, thrower, and this is something I've really been in getting into. And now you see it a lot on your page. But we talked about like trying to bend the spine, trying to move the ribs, uh, really just trying to move and load the spine in different ways, three uh, D uh, aspects there. And it, it's something that wasn't taught when we were growing up, and something that was just it was all brace. Like the only the only the only thing your rib cage knew how to do was compress. The only thing your rib cage was taught how to do was brace. And like you watch a lot of these amazing movers, and it's like. And to me, it's like a lot of times it's, it's like, no wonder a lot of elite athletes don't love like lifting a ton of weights. It's like, cause like that brace strategy doesn't make a ton of sense for a lot of the things that you're doing. It's valuable for sure. And it's helped me a ton for sure. But it's like, when that's your only movement option, your only movement solution, it's like, it doesn't work. Um, what are you looking to do in this, in this bending of spine and then this rib cage movement? And how are you really going about that aspect of like creating that 3d spine movement? Cause I think you do a really, really nice job of it. And I think it's something that's super valuable and super underrated in the sports performance sector. Like getting your spine and rib cage to move is one of the, one of the keys to success in sports performance for me when I'm really watching it now and really just for health too, and just feeling better and moving better. There's nothing that's really made me, there's not no single piece of exercise or uh, change in my approach than just adding some of those uh, things in. And early on, honestly, all it was early on was just side bending, like something as simple as a side bend. There's just nothing. We weren't doing that. So it was just strictly all brace, like planks and front planks, which is good, but like just moving the spine a different way. And I just felt amazing. I was like, Oh my goodness. And then it was crawling and climbing and just adding those different pieces in and getting the spine to move. What, what's the value there for you? How are you implementing those things? And what are the results that you've seen from that? So for me, I think that obviously if your spine is the thing that's conducting all of the signals that are being sent, sent out to the periphery, then it's something that we want to, um, you know, something we want to prioritize as far as the overall, our overall spinal hygiene and, and moving it in all directions on a pretty regular basis, right? This is something that should just be done as a maintenance thing, um, as well as the fact that you know, your movement should embody a pretty broad spectrum, you know, of activities. Um, so that all being said, I think that first you have to start with the fact that yes, the spine is the thing that's conducting the signals for movement, but at the same time, the orientation that we put our spine in is, is reactive to some degree. So if we have a stiff ankle, um, or you know, locked up hip, 
then we're going to compensate through the you know lower back or whatever else and now our spine is kind of like this and i think that like one of the biggest things to do in the jefferson curls and doing a full range of motion stuff putting yourself into these positions where you're getting through the full range of motion is to kind of rediscover what those imbalances are because especially with guys that rotate one way all the time i just throw a righty and i go rotate left rotate left rotate left that sets me up for some imbalances. You know what I'm saying? Like you're bound to end up with imbalances, a bigger right lat than left lat. You know, my left glute meat is tight all the time and you know, whatever else, like you're bound to have these things. So like, I'll give you a little uh, example of stuff that I do for spinal health. Uh, you know, one of my athletes, we just discussed this the other day. You know, I said, you go out and you have uh, outing a hundred pitches or whatever. And you know, after every outing that I would have where it was in a game setting, I told him, I said, I would go over and go, because he's a right-handed thrower. I said, I would go right side forward lunge, you know, like as part of my arm care, basically post throw, I would do right side forward lunge for, you know, a three minute hold or whatever else, like every single time, because you just did a hundred reps the other way. Right. And rotated that way. And I said, for the first minute, you know, I'd be in rotation around this way. You know, and like, and then I, you know, kind of settle back into stance or whatever, but like just doing things to throwing left-handed as well, I think is another thing that a lot of guys miss out on. Um, just because like, even by comparison, yeah, doing stuff in those side bands, rotating the other way and all that, that's good, but it's totally different. We go back to magnitude and speed again. It's totally different max intensity thrown with like, like a tennis ball or a baseball or whatever else. The speed at which you're rotating your shoulders now, totally different, you know, totally different animal. Also, um, the butt throws and one knee throws, the constrained throwing. Um, that probably one of the biggest and most underrated things out there that I do with guys uh, for oblique, uh, TA, you know, glute mead, all that pelvic floor health and, and getting the, uh, hips midsection and shoulders all firing correctly. You know, there is an aspect to the butt throws and stuff that people don't realize a lot of times. And that's that the constrained nature of it forces your, your hips to be locked or your butt to be locked to the ground. Right. So I can't really turn my hips anymore. Um, that means that I have to force myself into maximum separation and counter rotation portion of my throw, right. To actually make the throw feel powerful at all. I've got to max this out on top of which after I throw the deceleration portion, it's got to happen in a much smaller window. I can no longer rotate with my throw and slow that throw down over a longer period of time. I just kind of has to stop immediately. Right. And, um, you know, I think with that, like with the, the the butt throw, it's a little bit more promotes a little bit more rotational kind of aspect to the throw. I think with the one knee throw, with one knee down on the ground and one knee up like that, but still constrained. I think that you feel a little bit more of this lateral line um, aspect because you're you, there's more of the the pullback, the front hip pullback action to that. That's what you feel more of. Um, and there's a little bit more of this lat lengthening going on. So, um, and then I think that makes for a really good pre warm up. you know what I mean? Like warm up for your throw. And I think that those done in 
volume over time, I think that that sets you up and, and doing them both ways too, like those lefty, you know, stuff like that. I think that sets you up to, for your back to be in pretty good shape as a thrower. I think that those, uh, throwing both ways. I think that the training yourself from constrained positions. Um, also I like to do things like between my sets of throwing, I like to do things like PRI stuff where I, I just go over and rotate my hips ahead of my shoulders as far as I can and breathe into my rib cage, you know, go the other way. And so I stretch between sets and stuff. So I try to open myself up more, you know, set the set. Um, Another thing I would say that if, if you find areas in your body that, you know, I have a specific joint that doesn't want to have very good range of motion, typically you're going to see the adjacent joint group compensating for it, right? So if my ankle's stiff, my knee is now unstable as a result or whatever, where I have, I should have had a, a mobile joint, you know, stable joint, mobile joint. Now I've got a, you know, an instant mobile joint where it shouldn't be basically. I think that, uh, you know, those things should be prioritized first. You know, if you have a certain area on your body that range of motion is inhibited, I think instead of going to compression first, so like the ATG lunge, you know, say I can't bend, flex my knee all the way, uh, you know, in a, compre a compressed, dense position. Um, I wouldn't just typically start with that. In my experience, just as a general rule, as we're talking about joint health and range of motion and end ranges and stuff like that, I wouldn't start by even front foot elevated working into that the way that their program does. I'd start with the opposite first and then go into that. So meaning that I think that a lot of times when you bring the extension back to the joint first, I think that you see results with the compression aspect of the joint. I'm only really going over this because I've, uh, you know, had to learn the hard way, um, with my own knees. So, uh, that usually finding extension, uh, first and opening up the joint, improving the range of motion that way always facilitates compressing the joint further. But I think that movement strategies where compression is the beginning, uh, you know, using the beginning stages, I think that that can actually exacerbate inflammation and stuff. If you have a joint that just like every time I get it in a compression, man, it just fires up on me. It feels really super tight. I think that it's better to go the other way, you know, like elbows, preacher curl, you know, would be a good example of that, you know? Um, and if I've got like bottom tricep tightness and stuff like that. So, um, I think that those are, those are pretty good strategies for, uh, joint health and spine health, um, as a whole, but, uh, I think another um, last thing I'll say about this, I think another good way to look at it would be to look at how, how did you develop your own movement patterns? Like as a toddler, you know, as a baby and a toddler, um, you know, what did you learn to do first? You, know, you were kind of discussing, like I, we weren't like doing any side bending stuff. I remember when I started implementing that, how much better my back felt, um, especially as like a rotational guy. And I Fowler fitness, uh, Grant Fowler, I was, chatting with him and he pointed me in the direction of uh, Sally Goddard and looking into primitive reflexes. So I kind of went back and cause I was already, you know, I was already into basically, as I kind of talked about earlier, there are these progressions to kind of how you want to train tissue, whether it progresses to how you kind of want to train motor patterns too. Right. Like sit, stand, walk, you know, and then like 
the upper body movement patterns and so forth and complexity of those movement patterns. Well, the, I was talking to him about the gross motor and fine motor stuff. And he mentioned to me that to look into that and it kind of took me back to the developmental stages of how you learn to stand. And well, first it's just even turning your head side to side. Right. And then it's rolling over, you know, both sides. And then it's, you know, standing up or whatever else. I mean, I'd have to look at it again, but what I did basically was like, you're crawling, right? Crawling would be next and, you know, get, actually getting into a prone position and then up on all fours and so forth. And you kind of look at all that and you like say, all right, well, actually, let me like readdress all of these things myself. And I actually got to go back through how did like, I learned each aspect of this book. I think people will actually find that certain aspects of how they developed as a kid, you know, very, very early on dictate their, a lot of what they do now and how they move now. And I think that the only way to really get, get back to the root of where you might have these deficits or these reflexes that are poorly tuned is to go back in and start step by step and go through the, you know, like you were talking about the crawling patterns, like rolling on the ground, all that stuff, you know? And I think a lot of times you'll get some uh, back cracks and stuff that, are just wild you know what i mean just by laying on the ground and doing crazy shit down there you know like you feel way better i think that's a big piece of it too right for back health like just get on the ground you know what i mean like lay on the ground roll around on a hard surface and like roll on it roll back and forth on it crossover leg crossover stuff on it crawling on it even impact even falling on the ground i think that there's a, there are good aspects of like learning how to fall right and stuff like i think that all of that comes into play with your body's ability to keep a healthy spine and i think uh, a lot of people talk about how when back injuries happen it's like outside the weight room stuff like i'm bending over to pick up some groceries or something you know i tweak my back or getting out of the car and i tweak my back and i think that like getting some ability to have some versatility with uh, you know, that spinal movement, like ability to have some resiliency, like falling down and moving in all different directions. And I think that has a big, uh, that's a big factor in that. I think if you just move one way all the time and then you go and you do something a little different without breathing and bracing, right. All of a sudden now you got a tweaked QL, you know, and you just can't stand up straight anymore. So. Yeah, um, I think all of those come into play. That's freaking awesome. I, that, that, that was a great answer. I have a lot of notes on that one. That, that's that's going to be good <laughs> to go back through and listen to. I, I like going back to the roots. And I, like I, I, one part of that, like you mentioned, is like going back to the roots, going back to the ground. It's like when was the last time a lot of people were there too? I think that was, again, drawing it back to like, if you wanted to get really good at squatting, like you would squat a bunch. And it's like, if you want to get really good at moving, like you'd move a bunch, but a lot of people really haven't, you know, like they, 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 they've, they've perfected a squat pattern and that makes sense to them. And they've done like these, these things, but like getting off the ground, moving their spine, they just haven't done it a ton, but yet they expect to have that function, you know? And it's like, and it, it's not like, it's not like you need to spend, it's not like the PT where you have to spend 45 minutes with these like tiny, small exercises and you're really not getting a ton done. It's like, you can do that with five to 10 minutes a day, you know, just move, like mm -hmm. just get yourself on the ground, mm -hmm. like you said, and just move and you, you'll feel so much better. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, gymnastics. I love a lot of those points. Yep. Gymnastics. I think, I think you go back and you read literature too about power lifters, you know, programs that had really good power lifters. They'll say, you know, well, the reason why the, you know, our group of athletes were so good is because they never missed their gymnastics in the morning, you know, like, 
like it's what 15, 25 minutes of conditioning of cartwheels and somersaults and stretching and stuff like that, uh, rolling on the ground and whatnot. Like, I mean, that's just you going around. You know I mean, and that was in, that was in the, one of the questions I think you were going to ask as well is like the, you use the term holistic approach, but I think, you know, holistic meaning like, yes, there's the total body, but I think you discussed like getting outside and getting in the sun and bare feet and all that stuff as well. Like, I think that a big aspect of all of this is, uh, you know, just getting outside and, and being kid-like to some degree. And um, I think that your training should be fun. And I think that it should be random a little bit. And I think that it should be a little bit scary sometimes. You know what I mean? Like you should have to be able to try new things that scare you. Like, I mean, I, I you know, I've seen guys come in and be terrified to do a handstand. You know what I mean? And I just, for a guy who's an overhead athlete, you know, that, that blows me away. But at the same time, like you will be blown away at the hurdle, the mental hurdle that they actually believe they've, they've overcome just by actually completing their first handstand, you know, and not being afraid they're going to smash their head into the ground and stuff. Like, I think that like learning little skills like that are huge for development as a whole. I think that anytime that you can take the governor off, you know, a little bit more and, feel less inhibited, feel that fear a little bit less. Uh, I think that that's going to help you with your athleticism and just generally as a whole, I think I always feel better and more accomplished about myself as a whole when I approach things that way. You know? So um, that all being said, uh, the uh, getting outside has plenty of benefits to it the vitamin d the grounding aspects the you know barefoot training aspects of it all that kind of stuff i I, but i think that more than that if your training isn't fun and um if it's not something that you look forward to every day i think you're really missing the point you know what i mean and for me that that's a requirement like I, i i need to be able to get out and feel the you know heat of the sun on my body and move my body freely every day outside and you know that's like a must if i couldn't do that man i'd be depressed so um you know that's a luxury that i get to do that every day and um, i like to always try to keep that in mind as well is that we we get to train and i love my training training is fun to me and you know i like to to get out there and try new things and and, and challenge myself to PR in something every day, you know what I mean? Whether it's doing the same exercise faster or doing it more dynamically or doing something I've never done before, just, you know, the same exercise with a little modification or whatever else. I like to try to find a way to, you know, do it a little bit better, hold it a little longer, do it more dynamically, whatever else. And I think that if you kind of, we referenced it earlier, if you take some elite pride in what you do every day and, in your training, you love your training, you know, it's your baby. I think that, um, you know, you're going to be happy with it, but that's the accountability piece of it. You know, is that that's, that's going to also account for your focus that you take into it and the quality of your work and all these other things as well. So, and how you affect your fellow team members and the guys you're working out with as well. But yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that's awesome. That, that's a freaking great way to end that uh, end the main part of the podcast. I, that, that's, I'm all about that, man. That, that's what I preach left and right. I got final two questions here, rapid fire round here, uh, and then I'll get you off this podcast. Um, freaking pumped for this one. This, this is a good one so far. 
favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of? And this can be uh, in the sports performance sector or it can be outside, whatever you want to take it, however you want to take it. What are some favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of? Super Training would be my first one, probably, by Mel, Mel Sif. That's um, the and Verka Shansky or however you say the guy's name there, the, the shock method guy and Mel Sif basically put that book together. Um, so super training would be my first one. Um, I would say I just read uh, Charlie Francis training system. I really like that book. Um, I would say red gold is a good one. It's, uh, about psychology, um, some psychological training methods that the uh, Soviets used, um, some of their elite athletes. Uh, let's see what else. I, uh, I like Bruce Lee's books. Um, I know BMAC touched on that a little bit, but he's got good. He's got a couple good books. Art, Exp- Art of expressing human, human movement. And I think, and, uh, I think there's another one, Jeet Kune Do. Both of those are good. Um, Yeah, that's a pretty, probably a pretty good starting list. Yeah, I love it. That, that, that's, that's a good one. And then the final question of the podcast, and this is when all the coaching and training stuff is over. Uh, what do you kind of want your legacy to be? That's a great question. Um, my legacy, man, that's a great question. I didn't even expect that. Uh, I would probably say, you know, more than more than anything else, if I had if I had my choice of being an athlete or being a coach or being being, I guess identified as as one of those, I would probably pick. I'd probably pick being the, the best the best coach within the baseball industry. You know what I'm saying? At least or the pitching realm. You know, I would probably choose that. Um, even over being one of the best big league athletes myself i mean hopefully i can go do that too but even if i had that i think that i would still want to be known as one of the best trainers for for overhead athletes you know um just because i that's the thing in my life that really like makes me feel whole you know it makes me feel like i have real purpose and and when i get to like care for other people and see them have success then i really feel like the, the the gifts the talents blessings, whatever that I've been given, whether or not I'm able to go and, and put them into practice day in and day out on the, on the, you know, on the field at the highest level or not. Like if I can help a multitude of other individuals do that for themselves as well, I see that as a huge win. And I really feel like I'm able to then kind of take the blessings that God's given me and, and multiply them in a way, you know, and, uh, so that's probably what I would say in the end. That's that would make me the happiest if if I could uh, help people to reach their goals, man. You know, at the highest level. You know, that that's really what it comes down to. That's freaking awesome, Coach. Thanks for being on. This is sweet. Thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. Have fun. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.